And for the last two weeks, I have been beating this drum, um, which has in it embedded the following questions. What does your heart desire? What has been promised to you for eternity or in eternity? And then what has your experience been um, with this world and all that it has to offer? And I've asked this question in order to, I don't think they're brilliant questions or anything like that, but in order to shed some light uh, on this question, which was, how do I set my mind on things that are above where Christ is and not on things on the earth, uh, which comes from the opening verses of chapter 3. And what I said during review last week is that if you want to know how to get where you want to go, you've got to know where you are, uh, which is not even a brilliant observation, right? Pretty uh, first gradey. But if you... <laughs> survey the landscape of your mind and, and just kind of ask, all right, what does my heart want? What is it really, what, what am I after? And then uh, you compare that with what's been promised to you in the life to come. Now, whatever the answer is for you, now you know where you are. Here's what my heart wants. Here's what's been promised to me in the gospel by God for eternity you look at this thing, and you look at that, and you go, how close are we? Right? Now you know where you are. And that, that's not it. And so you're doomed. That's not at all what the point of that is. What should happen to us when we come to life, when we start to see everything, but it, it usually the, the opening of our spiritual eyelids is in fits and starts and in and, and bits and pieces, right? But when we start to see with the eyes of faith and we start listening with ears that are tuned to Christ's voice, what should happen is that we are less, I mean, it's what should happen, okay? Is we are less and less interested in toying with the world, the flesh, or the devil and all his trinkets. And if you're, you know, between the ages of 12, and I don't know, for me it was about 36. Uh, I hear preachers say that, or I would read that in a book, and I would immediately be like, oh, here we go. Oh, because you're so high-minded, you're not interested in the things on earth anymore. And I didn't buy it. Um, I still kind of don't, depending on how it's presented, but I, I, that's not where I want you to be. I don't want you to be in that headspace where you're like, uh, you think that I am lording over you that I have a higher view than you do or something like that, because I don't. Uh, if you're not becoming less and less interested in toying with the world, the flesh, or the devil and all his trinkets, I'm not going to motivate you by, by browbeating you. It just won't work. I can't change the interest of your heart by making fun of you. It, it won't work. I promise you it won't work. If anything, it will harden you in your conviction that the pursuit of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all these trinkets is actually worthwhile. So what I have to do is constantly remind us that sanctification, that agonizingly slow process by which Jesus is making us look more like himself and less uh, entangled in sinful practices, sanctification is not accomplished by frantic religious activity. 
It's not the means by which we become more like Jesus. Because the instant the Bible calls you to practical holiness, most of us, and I know some of you are more mature in the faith and you don't have this issue anymore, but usually the moment the Scripture calls you to some practical holiness task, we start rocking back and forth anxiously wondering if we're going to make the cut. Right? The Bible says, don't do this anymore, and we go... So last week we focused on verses 5 through 7, which is precisely the sort of call to action that I'm talking about. Um, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. So I have to ask you a question in, in light of last week's message, which most of you Most of you were here and heard last week's message, right? Not all, but most of you. The question then is this. Is your Bible saying the following? And you don't need to answer out loud. You just have to be honest between you and Jesus, okay? Is your Bible saying the following? You better stop sinning, especially sexual sin, or God is going to be furious. Christians don't do that anymore. And in fairness to you, if your answer is yes, I did give an illustration involving a maniac who tried to domesticate two lionesses. I did suggest that accommodating sin is essentially the same thing as trying to have lions as house pets. I did say that we have to kill sin. However, in fairness to biblical accuracy, I also pointed out that Galatians 5, Romans 7, and 1 Peter 2 make it clear that sin does not disappear from your life when you become a Christian, right? Didn't I say that? I mean, didn't didn't the Bible say that, I should say? So the call to practical holiness works like this. If your life, and I know... Every illustration has its limitations. So if you spend enough time thinking about this one and find the reach that, that where it stops, don't discount everything that I've told you as useless. All right? It's an illustration. If your life is a ship crossing the ocean or a transcontinental r- r- railway, uh, before you come to Christ, sin is the captain or the conductor of that vessel. Sin decided where the stops were, what the speed was, what meals were served, who was allowed on board, and how the hours were spent. When you came to faith in Jesus, he boarded the vessel, snatched sin out of the captain's seat, and put himself there, right? Now, this week I want to get a little bit more granular with this illustration because there, there, there wasn't just one sin in your life when Christ took control, was there? And there might have been one dominant running the show, but there were uncountable numbers of others as well, according to Psalm 40:12, which says, Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs on my head, and my heart fails me. That's the reality when Christ comes and takes the captain's chair. And the problem, really, for us, I think, if we could boil it down, is that he doesn't, like when he, 
When he yanks sin out of the captain's seat, he doesn't throw open an exterior door and chuck sin out into the ocean. For whatever reason, he doesn't throw sin overboard. And we don't have time for the question, why not today? And the text before us in no way lends itself to that discussion. The point is this. The vessel now moves under Christ's directions, but sins are yet passengers. They're on the ship with you and Jesus. And Jesus has commissioned you to kill them. Yeah. So these calls to practical holiness are not the commission. So important. Uh, if I tweeted that, and everybody who, who longs to understand theology saw it, they would all retweet it. This is such an important theological truth. Jesus has commissioned you to kill sin. Amen? These calls to practical holiness are not the commission. This is not the commission. This is not Jesus telling you to kill sin. These are the characteristics by, by which we are able to identify sin. So last week, my point was simply, do you see a 400-pound predator that it can grow to be, or do you just see the mewing kitten that it is right now? Paul mentions four things to help us identify sin, with which most of us are pretty familiar. Sexual immorality, impure passions, harmful desires, and coveted, covetousness, all of which I believe are idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of anything other than God, right? So do you see sin for what it is, or do you see it as something else? Because the Christian has Christ in the central point, in the captain's seat of their life. He has said, as captain of the vessel, he has said, kill sin, this is what it looks like. He didn't say, build sin in an enclosure and feed it. He didn't say, take sin on walks and try to reason with it. He didn't say, don't try to kill sin unless it hurts you. He did say, nothing makes the father more angry than sin. That was verse 6. And he did say, you've already tried domesticating it. You know that doesn't work. That was verse 7. So it's armed with that understanding that we come to verse 8. Colossians 3, 8. But now, you must put them all away. Okay? Here we go. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So let's do the diligent thing um, for the sake of our young people and make sure we understand these words. Anger and wrath. Anger, in this case, is violent passion. Literally, taking action because your mind is excited and then behaving violently. Does, does that matter? I mean, you all knew what anger and wrath meant before you sat down here today. So why, why the dissertation on the original language? Because it's not a sin to be angry. So this must mean something else other than just anger, period. Put it away. So when I say anger in this case, perfect example, is violent passion, literally taking action because your mind has become inflamed by something. 
and behaving violently. What you should think is, oh, that's different than just anger, right? Wrath, in this case, is huffing and snorting. A lot of us, I mean, we have most of our experience with wrath during our teenage years, right? It's literally breathing hard with indignation. <sighs> That's funny. In reality, if we take anger and wrath and we want to illustrate what this looks like, I think an abusive husband or father might be the best picture we could draw of anger and wrath. Sounds like an engine trying to start, doesn't it? I'll hold her if you want, Grace. Um, so the call is to put it to death. Anger and wrath. And, and we can't gloss over this because just scoot your eyes down to 18 real quick and look at the first two words of 18. How's that going to play in 2023, right? Oh, I'm going to preach it. We're going to get there, and I'm going to preach it. But think about this. If we don't deal with anger and wrath, when you come to 318, all of a sudden, what you're doing is subjecting women to wrathful, angry, abusive, domineering husbandry. So Paul lays these things out in an order that matters. Put this away. Put it to death. This is indulgent anger and wrath. It's self-serving. It's about my agenda. That's a lot different than righteous anger, right? So you're maintaining things on your vessel. Jesus has commissioned you to kill sin wherever you find it. You're doing some cleaning, and, uh, and you notice uh, a, like a kitten with little razor claws and needle teeth. And, and then, you know, I mean, all, which all kittens have, right? And then you notice something about this kitten is that it hates everyone but you. And then you notice that it finds something wrong with everyone but you. And then you kind of suspect that it wants to destroy everyone but you. And it huffs and snarls on your behalf when you don't get your way. Weird kitten, right? Um, but it seems to like you quite a bit, so you'll have to figure something out. So you decide to name it Nut Job, and you trap it in this lower room and throw it food periodically. Maybe with time you can get it to settle down. And then later on, you're talking to Jesus, and he says, hey, just a reminder, I saw that you had trapped a sin named Wrath and anger down there in, in, in that lower deck room, you've got to kill that because it's going to turn into a 400-pound 400, 400 lioness that will hurt other people and you if you don't kill it. Now, so what's happening here when Jesus tells you this? What, what is this? What's playing out? Jesus is calling things by their proper name. We saw a kitten named Nutjob. Jesus calls it wrath and anger. Is God offering you salvation if you go kill it? Well, who's in the captain's seat? Let's go back to that. 
Jesus, so he's already on the vessel. We're not building a gangplank uh, by which he might board the ship. He's already there. So no, it cannot be that he's offering you salvation if you go kill it. He's already there. The ship, if we're to trust Jesus, is pointed to glory. That's where the prow is oriented. And it's just a matter of time until you get there. Some of you are much closer than me, assuming all things are equal, right? Some of you are further away. But if you're in Christ, That's the direction that this ship is going. And Jesus is the captain and he's not getting off the ship, but he won't have you harboring wrath and anger because he knows how dangerous it is to you and to the people that you love. So he calls us to kill it. What are you going to do? You're praying and the Holy Spirit points out sin in your heart that you've been domesticating. What are you going to do? Malicious talk. Now, the ESV translates this as malice and slander, but really, malicious talk is more accurate contextually. So you're below deck. Again, you see a little cub hanging around. This one's different than wrath and anger, though. It doesn't get all that active. It just lays above the door, sharpening its claws all day. And you watched it swatting people at school or work. Um, It doesn't make a mortal wound. It just kind of lays them open in the top of their head a little bit. And they deserve it because they don't work as hard as you, right? They aren't diligent. They take too many breaks. Like, maliciously identifying your colleagues' faults isn't great, but maybe they should work harder. Amen? Yeah. Sit there. That's fine. Uh, You watch it swap people at church. It can't, like, it doesn't, again, it's not, it's not, like, really hurting them. It just cuts them up some, and they deserve it because they never shut up, or they deserve it because uh, Matt or Lee or Cecil or Rick or James likes them more than they like you. Uh, they deserve it because they didn't show up to your party. Like slandering people isn't, especially at church, isn't great, but it's not like you're making things up. You watch it swat your husband or wife. It doesn't maim them, right? Let's keep everything in context. It just scratches them up real good. They deserve it because they leave the toilet seat in the wrong position. They deserve it because they don't notice all the nice things you do for them. They deserve it because, honestly, you could probably do better anyway, right? Talking bad about your spouse isn't great, but everyone needs to vent. But you don't want everyone getting scratched, so you put like a notice out on social media. Sorry if I offended anyone. I'm just brutally honest. That'll protect people from getting hurt too much by this cub that you're domesticating. Now, let's say at this point, you bump into an old flame uh, from school. They tell you, you look amazing, and they want to get coffee, and they want to appreciate you, and they want to hear about your life. They understand what you mean about your colleagues, and they appreciate all your qualities, and they laugh at all your jokes. (laughs) Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing some other lion cubs from back in verse Five, impure passion, evil desire, sexual immorality. And now these are more familiar because you've seen this breed before and you've dealt with it before, like way more than once. And so you're like, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. How did those get here? 
The, the minute you saw these, you knew them. You're familiar with those. So uh, it turns out that malicious speech about your husband or wife throws open the door for other sins to come in. It turns out that malicious speech about people that you go to church with invites you to a path of isolation and separation and kind of loneliness and kind of a longing for interaction with other people. So now you've alienated your spouse, and you've alienated people at church, and you're just kind of by yourself. And, and it turns out the result of that is other sins are invited in. So you put impure passion to death for the, for the thousandth time, and you put evil desire to death for the hundred thousandth time. And then you go up to the bridge to chat with Jesus, and he says, hey, I noticed, I noticed you were letting malicious speech swat at some people today. You need to put that to death because that could grow into a 400-pound lion that could really hurt somebody or kill somebody. Again, what's going on here? Is this the means to salvation? Is Jesus putting conditions on his love for you? Why don't you just love me the way I am, Jesus? He does. He does. That's why he's telling you. That's going to kill somebody. If you don't kill it, Obscene speech. So this isn't, this just isn't a great translation. Paul isn't talking about four-letter words. Now, it, we like that better. That's tidier for moms and dads, right? To be like, no, that's no unwholesome talk, no obscene speech. Don't talk in my house like that. We need a reason. So thank God for Colossians 3. The problem is, that's not what he's talking about. Like, the four-letter words that we use didn't exist when Paul was writing this. If they did, I mean, I imagine we'd have a list of the things that he... He lists all the other stuff. Why wouldn't he be like, don't say mm, and mm, and blank, and mm, it would all be in there. So, if you take th these words from their, like, the original Greek, it literally says vile communication. And contextually, this is abusive language. That's what makes it obscene. So imagine for a moment, every time you're in a conversation with somebody and a third party who's not part of this conversation comes up, every time that happens, you make it a practice to say something like kind and affirming about the other person. So, so... Kim and I are talking, and she brings up John, and I'm like, man, you know what I like about John? Fill in the blank. That'd be pretty cool, right? If we did, pretty novel too, if we did that. Uh, now get an enemy in your head. Can you say something kind and affirming? No, of course, yeah. If you try hard enough, you're like everybody's got at least one good quality. I'm not going to talk about Hitler here, but if somebody that you really don't like, who's done you dirty in your life, even they have something redeeming about them. Why is it so hard, though, to say that thing about them? Why doesn't it feel good? When you're talking about your enemy to be like, well, but you know, I mean, honestly, they are filling the blank with something positive. Why doesn't that feel good? Why does it feel kind of like, ugh? Because you've got a 400-pound deadly predator locked below deck and you've been domesticating it. That's why it doesn't feel good. 
Imagine for a moment your kid messes up again. They fail to do a chore for the thousandth time. They don't get home by curfew. They lie to you about something and you catch them and you let them have it with both barrels as you do. You always, you never. Every time I ask you to, I don't want to hear sorry from you. Now, is that true? Is that gracious? Is it loving? Is it gentle? No. But you were mad, so it's fine, right? And Jesus is telling you that it's not a pet you can domesticate. It's a deadly enemy that, he has, that he's commissioned you to kill. This one's called vile communication. And I don't know, maybe this isn't how we should talk about our commission. Maybe it is, but it helps me. There is no doubt about it, a biblical imperative to kill sin in our lives, right? Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, and then he lists sinful things. So there is, no doubt about it, a biblical imperative, commandment, directive, whatever words you want, to kill sin in our lives, right? Eradicate it. Give, it. give it absolutely no quarter. But this is not what we do. In, oh, here we go again. I got hung up on this last Sunday at the end. There, this is not what we do in order to become a Christian. This is what we do because we already are a Christian. Uh, again, Christ is the captain of your soul. He's already with you, and he's never leaving. So, he's, so Paul says, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. We just covered all those, believe it or not. Nine, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So here Paul proves the point I'm trying to make is not imaginary. Don't lie to one another. That's an imperative. That, that's something that the Bible's telling you, you must not do this. Super simple. Don't lie to one another, which means no matter how bad kids, so important that you hear this, especially uh, like most kids do most of their lying between 8 and 17 years old. Uh, they do the least amount of lying between the ages of six and eight, sadly enough. And most kids figure out how to lie at around age two. That's when they try it out for the first time. Okay, so kids, it's super important that you hear this. Um, no matter how bad you think the consequences are going to be, don't say anything is other than it actually is. Why not? So you tell your kids, don't lie. Why not? Because the Bible says it's bad. God hates liars. First of all, it doesn't say that. It does say it's bad, not the second part. Why not? Why shouldn't you lie? Other than it's wrong. We do lots of things that are wrong. What's the big deal about lying? Why shouldn't we lie? I'll give you two reasons. Lying, this sin is not a lion. It isn't a tiger. It isn't even a T-Rex. This sin is the support system for all the other ones. 
This is the one that all the other ones grow up out of. This was the first sin. And think about it. Lying is the sin that seeks to alter reality by words alone. What does that activity remind you of? This sin, lying, seeks to change reality by words alone. See, lying at the end of the day is a horrific mockery in imitation of the original act of creation. God spoke, it was, and it was good. We speak, and it's not, and it's evil. We lie, it isn't good. We convince others that it is good or that it is at all. Now, what have we just done? Have we defeated reality? Have we overthrown what's permanent, what's actually there? By saying, I'm not a man, I'm a woman now, have I changed reality? But I've created another one. So now, instead of existing under the weight of just the one reality, I exist under the weight of these two. The one that I've conjured up, and the one that really exists. Lying, whether we realize it or not, is breathtaking blasphemy, for it creates evil by the same act that God used to create everything. So that's the first reason we shouldn't lie to one another. Second, you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, what's that word? Yeah, knowledge after the image of its creator. So you've put the old self off, or you are in the process of putting off the old self. You're putting on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. What is a lie? It's information that you give that conflicts with reality. It's not knowledge. If we understand knowledge to be understanding, awareness, and comprehension, a lie destroys knowledge. Because it creates confusion, it obfuscates, and it distorts reality. It's the opposite of knowledge. It's the antithesis of knowledge. And it doesn't actually alter reality. Now, can I just ask a question? Is life kind of difficult? Like, isn't reality heavy enough by itself? Why would we want to add a whole nother reality to the equation and live under the weight of that? There's nothing more anxiety-inducing. Physically, uh, it will make you, nothing will make you more ill than being somebody who just exists in dual realities. Because honestly, there's not usually just the other alternate reality that you made. That one spawns a half a dozen, and those spawn dozens, and those spawn hundreds, and now you've got to keep it all straight. So God says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self and are putting on the new self. So a couple of weeks ago, we began this chapter and gave careful attention to verse 2, right? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And for three sermons now, I keep 
coming back to this. How do we set our minds on things above? And I keep repeating these questions to you. What is your heart desire? What's been promised to you in eternity? What's your experience been with this earth and all that it offers? And I've hinted that there's a probably a disparity between what your heart desires and what's been promised to you, right? Uh, what do you want? Well, I'll tell you what I want. I want comfort. I want success. I want respect from other people. I want everybody to pay attention while I'm preaching. I want less stress. I want a close companion. I want healthy kids. I want my appliances to work. I want to have enough money to never stress out about it again. I want my loved ones to not suffer. I want to live by the beach. Or maybe for you, it's on a mountain. What's been promised in eternity? Pretty much all of that. Right? I mean, if you boil it right down, um, I'm, I'm gaining traction, I think, as I get older, in the direction of finding my satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I ain't there yet, but I'm, I'm headed there. And when I see him, I'm going to be just like him. So my satisfaction will be in the one who made me and my relationship with him. Stress goes away, I'm assuming, in heaven because like everything works like it's supposed to now. And you're not constantly wondering if today's the day you're going to die. So that would reduce stress substantially, I would think. So a lot of the things that I want, a lot of the things that my heart desires are what has been promised to me in eternity. But the problem comes in that I desire them right now. And so I pursue them in a way that puts me in conflict with what God has commanded me to do. So maybe God is telling you to set your mind on things above where Christ is because he actually knows what makes for human flourishing right now. Maybe he actually knows what will ease your anxiety. Maybe he actually knows what will give you peace. Maybe he actually knows what will fill your heart. Maybe he actually knows what will cause you to have joy unspeakable. And maybe it's something other than this broken world. Uh, one of two options, right? Set your mind on things above where Christ is. Or you're going to make me angry. Or set your mind on things above where Christ is so we can start to heal what's broken in your heart. It seems to me that a God who is real concerned that you're going to make him angry all the time, he's just obsessed with it. You're going to make me angry. It seems to me that that God doesn't send his only begotten son to die on a cross to redeem you from the pit. Seems to me that God stomps around and sets things on fire. But that's not what we have. That's not what we have. So don't lie to one another. Imperative, directive, commandment. Since you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Reason, incentive, inspiration. Here's why you don't lie to one another. You're being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. What's a lie? Not knowledge. Listen to me, please. <laughs> your father in heaven, if you're in Christ, loves you. And if you're sitting there like, well, of course he does. I'm amazing. 
you're missing, you missed the, the whole first most important part maybe for you of this sermon. I'm amazed by my own ability to listen to a sermon with 10% of my ear and drop in and drop out as the guy is preaching his guts out. And maybe, again, maybe walk away with 3% of everything that he actually said and not ever suspect that maybe I walked away with the wrong 3%. So listen to me, please. And I'll know you're listening because you're looking right at me. Your Father in heaven, if you are in Christ, loves you. And you cannot change that. He wants you to have joy, peace, and satisfaction. That's what God actually wants for you. He actually knows how you'll gain those things. So he says this, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Kill sin wherever you find it. It's two. Three, don't lie. And watch what happens in your heart when it's increasingly preoccupied with Jesus. We'll get to the weapons against sin in the coming weeks, but for now we are out of time. So let's pray.